The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And we resume our study of this gospel at the place where Jesus was taken before the Jewish court of the Sanhedrin for trial. And I'm not sure that what I have to say to you today is actually a sermon. Uh, This is more of a story of a proceeding, an explanation of it. But since it is part of Scripture, I I think that it's okay if I tell you a Bible story rather than doing uh, much sermonizing today. And I realize that I might get in trouble with the homiletics department at the seminary, but they're not here, and I am, so I think I'll just do it the way that I want to do it. So I'll take a little license this morning. Now, you remember from our previous studies that Jesus had just finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. His hour had come for him to be taken to the cross. It was quickly approaching. And quite frankly, if Jesus was to be put to death, there had to be a legal reason to do it. Now, at the conclusion of his prayer in the garden, when God had strengthened him for these final days of the end of his life, Judas arrived there with a, with a band of men, and they arrested Jesus, and they came with a predetermined verdict of death. And what was left was to put him through a trial that would uphold that verdict. And we don't really need to go very far than this, more or further than this, than to understand that there was nothing fair about what was about to happen. What happens next, there is no fairness to it all. It's all formality. Because the verdict has already been decided, they arrive in the garden with the verdict in hand. Because in Matthew chapter 12, it tells us they'd already held a council, they'd already gotten together, and they decided that Jesus must die. And even if the charges against him were implausible, even if they couldn't be proved, something had to be done to make those charges stick. And this is what happens in the mock trial. Now, as we've discussed many times, it is God's plan for the redemption of man that Jesus would come as a sacrifice for sin. That goes all the way back into the Old Testament, of course, with the many types. I think it goes back before the foundation of the world with the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, that Jesus would come and give his life as a sacrifice. God is the one who planned the cross, but in that planning, men worked, or in the plan, the working out of the plan, men worked from the depravity of their hearts They worked exactly into the plan as God would have him to. And yet, as Peter explained, and and as the Word of God shows us, that they did this out of their own desires. They did exactly what they wanted to do. It was the predetermined plan of God, according to Acts 2, and what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. That was affirmed in Acts chapter 4, when the whole church came together. And they said, same thing, this was determined by God. And if we wonder how is it that things work out this way, we can point in this direction that the unjust trial and the crucifixion of Christ are simply a microcosm of the entire history of man. 
that we are against God. It flows out of the hostility that man has in his heart towards God. The Scripture says that we are at enmity with God. And what we do every single day of our lives, not knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, is to crucify the Son of God in our hearts. There's really not any other explanation why there could have been such cruel treatment for the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. There is no explanation for how this could take court or take place in a court of Israel, the courts of Israel, which were the models for jurisprudence of their day. There's no explanation how that could happen, that Jesus would be taken when their law demanded incontrovertible proof of a crime, And yet it did happen. And it happened on a major scale. And this wasn't in some backwoods courtroom of some community in Israel. No, this happens in Jerusalem in the very highest court of the Jews, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, we'll look at this text today. And I'm not going to ask you to stand as we read this morning. Just sit there and get ready for the message of the day. If you look at Matthew 26 and verse 27, it says, And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death but found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? In last week's message, I began by commenting on the fascination that we have for lawyers and trials and courtrooms. And I suppose that our interest is intrigued and piqued by the introduction and crafty use of evidence. What we really like to get into to see the logical arguments of how you would go about proving a person to be guilty or proving the innocence of a person. And for many years, the most popular shows on television have been those about courtrooms and lawyers. And even now, uh, the popular shows are about forensic evidence that will be presented in courtrooms. And so most of us are very familiar with how much evidence that it takes to actually convict someone of a crime. We've seen these things for years on TV, and all of us in our own little way, we're little lawyers out there that you watch those things and say, well, I know he's guilty, I see the evidence and that kind of thing, we can gather that. Well, in the trial and the execution of Jesus, there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. The smoking gun was planted, you might say, and 
there were many adjustments that had to be made to the trial, to the proceedings, in order that they could make this verdict of, on Jesus to stick, that he was guilty of a crime. Now, we looked at that last week briefly under the heading of the adjustments to procedures. And I'm not going to go into much detail about that again this morning, but let me just mention some of this, that there was a problem with the judge and the jury who were complicit in the arrest. Both the judge and the jury are supposed to be impartial, but in this case, they were actually involved in, in the arrest and also in the case for the prosecution. They had convinced Pilate to give them a, a band of soldiers by telling him a lie and telling him that there was an insurrection coming if they did not arrest Jesus. And so a seed had already been planted in Pilate's mind, a prejudice against Jesus. And that's before we ever get into the next phase, which will be the Roman trial. Then the judge also demanded that Jesus would testify against himself a self-condemning confession was the easiest for them. Uh, that would uh, hasten the proceedings. But just as is the case in our courtrooms, the accused cannot be compelled to testify against himself. This is a trial that was held at night. And night trials were specifically forbidden by the Jews because trials that take place at night under the cover of darkness cast a shadow that they are clandestine. And then there were all other issues as well about the timing. It was close to the Passover. That's right upon them. And what the Jews wouldn't do, especially in capital cases, they wouldn't gather to consider the evidence for a capital case because that wouldn't give them time to do all the deliberations that are needed to decide, have they got all the evidence in if this, to see if this person is actually innocent of the crime that he's been accused of committing. So they didn't want to rush to judgment. But all of these requirements were thrown out because they had the verdict in their hand. They already decided before Christ came and sat in the witness chair. Next, we discussed the accusers for the prosecution. And there we began a breakdown of the illegal proceedings. The accusers were the judges. Now, in the first part of this ecclesiastical trial, Jesus was brought before Annas... And Annas was the former high priest and yet still a very powerful man. Annas had actually become too powerful for Rome's taste. He was too controlling of the people. Uh, they leaned too much on him, and so they removed Annas from his position. He wasn't good for Rome. But Israel considered the high priest's job to be a lifetime job. Jewish law said that a high priest was priest for life, so although he had been deposed by the Romans... He was still a very respected person in his position. And Annas and his religious crime network had been hurt by Jesus' actions. The priest wanted Jesus dead because he was a threat to their syndicate. They were the extortioners at the temple. They were controlling the sales of sacrificial animals. And during the Passion Week, Jesus came into the temple and put a stop to all of that. It was the most lucrative time of the year, Passover, when all these lambs are being sold for sacrifice. So at the most lucrative time of the year, when the most money is to be made, Jesus stepped into the temple and drove out the money changers, and the people were in favor of that. They'd been gouged by these, these uh, leaders for so long, they were ready for somebody to stand up and say, this is not right. And so the sales were halted at the temple. And Annas became enraged about what Jesus did. The gravy train of the money was stopped. He's the powerful dawn of the crime family, but he's helpless. 
He's helpless. And so he became further enraged when speaking to Jesus and questioning him because he could not get Jesus to incriminate himself. Well, he was thwarted by the wisdom of Jesus' answers. Pilate wanted that self-incriminating evidence, but Jesus said, don't ask me what I've done. Don't ask me what I've taught. Go to the people at the temple. Listen to the ones that I talk to every day. Ask them what I taught. And what Jesus did was to throw it back on Annas, and he has to abide by the law if he's going to get his answers. So failing to do that, Annas sent him over to Caiaphas, Caiaphas is the current high priest. He's the son-in-law of Annas. And Caiaphas was a self-serving hypocrite who used religion as a tool to get what he wanted. Uh, He was much like 90% of the preachers that you find on TBN. He cared nothing at all about the spirit of the law and certainly not about fairness and justice. And he was willing to murder to get the money flowing at the temple again. But he has a problem. And his problem is this has to appear to be just. He has to build this facade that his decision, the decision of his court, would be best for the people. And what Caiaphas had determined just previous to this is Jesus must be killed because he causes division. Rome doesn't like restlessness. Rome is in favor of an easy peace, and they don't like it when there's division among the people and there's problems. So earlier, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus must die. He has to die to keep Rome off their backs. They can't do what they want to do at the temple as long as Jesus was there. There's going to be division if he's alive. So this is where we are in the trial now. Jesus is before Caiaphas, and the procedures have been twisted, and Caiaphas, the judge, is the prosecutor. Now we move on, thirdly, to the accusations that are presented. Now the trial has just begun. The Verdict has already been established before the first word of testimony is given. But this has to look like a real trial and a real crime. Rome would not execute Jesus without a real cause. But the Jews' reason for him to die and the Romans' reason was different. In the Jewish court, insurrection against Rome is not a crime. The Jews hated Roman occupation. The smaller group of the Sadducees, they would use Rome when it was to their benefit, but most of the people, the Pharisees and others, they were against Roman occupation. And so the Jews are not going to try Jesus for insurrection. That's not a cause for them to put him to death. So they have to look for another cause. Their cause, Rome cares nothing at all about. And so when we get into the next trial, when we come to the Roman trial, the charge is going to change, and they will accuse Jesus of insurrection, sedition against the Roman government. But here, the charge is that he makes himself above the law. He makes himself God. And that's an ironic charge because Jesus is the one who gave the law. But nonetheless, they go about trying to protect their understanding of the law and protecting God's integrity. And so they went after the only charge that they thought would work, and that is the charge of blasphemy. And we'll see that in just a few minutes. Now, it's clear that there's nothing less than collusion in the trial. They knew that this trial has to work. They tried to take Jesus many times before. They had no success. They know that this has to work or else the cause is lost. And so I think that before the trial ever started, they were already getting their ducks in a row. They were already looking for witnesses to accuse him. 
And as they interviewed witness after witness, I suppose that there were probably many that agreed to help them, but there was none of them that could actually agree on their testimony. They couldn't just pull out one witness and get him to lie. I mean, the law was very clear about that. The Old Testament emphasized there has to be more more than one witness at a trial. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. That Old Testament principle was very well known. And what Jesus actually did was to incorporate that same law into church doctrine. And he did that in Matthew eighteen sixteen. There Jesus said about an offending church member, he says, But if thou will, he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Later, the Apostle Paul also used that same principle when he talked about accusations against an elder, against pastors of a church. And he wrote in Timothy, against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And so you see, that's very common, and as badly as they might have liked to, this is a law they can't circumvent. And this is a law that still remains a staple. It's a major requirement of every judicial system that it takes at least two witnesses to convict. And you can't have two people that are in disagreement because that's no better than having one witness. So in this case, there are many witnesses that were interviewed, but nobody could agree. But then conveniently, there are two witnesses that are found And the reason that they're found is recorded in verses 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. Now you notice that the court sought false witnesses. They knew what they were looking for. Jesus had never committed crime. A crime, so the only witnesses that could be found would have to be false witnesses. You can't find any other kind in this case. So when the false witnesses are found, the story does have to be the same, which means that these witnesses must have been coached. Now, interestingly, the same thing happened at the trial of Stephen before the same court. In Acts chapter 6, verse number 11, it says, Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Suborned is a word that means that they colluded. They induced false testimony. And so with Stephen, so with Jesus. Somebody behind the scenes gets two witnesses together and says, Look, fellas, we need you to bear witness against Jesus. We need you to testify against him. And here is what you need to say. And you have to agree on this. So this is what we want you to say when you go into the courtroom. And that has to be the case because you can't have two people make up independently what Jesus did not say. And so these two come with their charge. And we see it in verse number 61. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, you and I would think this is a ridiculous charge because they don't believe that he's God. And, and if he's not God, then how is he going to tear down the temple and build it in three days? 
How, how is he going to tear down any structure and build it in three days, much less one that took decades to build? So if anything, the charge here should be lunacy. If he's not God, then he's a lunatic. But they preferred to pretend that they took him seriously, and so therefore they have a substantial charge. Any desecration of the temple is a very serious offense. Now remember later that Paul was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple, and what they wanted to do was tear Paul limb from limb because of that desecration. So tearing down the temple, that would be a major thing. I mean, even Rome preferred not to desecrate the temples of the gods of the people. They knew uh, you attack their gods, you've got a serious problem. You're going to have a problem with the Pax Romana. So these two false witnesses agreed that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and build it again in three days. And of course, they were concentrating on the destroying part, not the building part. And you wonder why should they even care at all? It was the heathen Romans that had practically built the temple and expanded it to what it was in their day. So they didn't really care about the building. It's false piety because what they'd done was desecrate the temple every single day with their extortion. But they had the charge that they needed, even though it was inaccurate to say the least, because Jesus never claimed that he was going to destroy the temple. Now, this is what he actually said in John 2.19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, we know in the first place that the Jews missed the meaning of the statement, but even if they did get it, in the second place he did not say, I will destroy it. They said that he said, I will destroy it, but Jesus didn't say that. He said, destroy this temple. And I don't care if you're speaking Greek or Hebrew, Latin, English, Swahili, or whatever it is, there's an implied you in that sentence. You destroy the temple, and I'll raise it. Now, there's only one way that that makes sense. That's the only way, because he's talking about his death. You destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it again. Now, I don't want to belabor the point here because they are false witnesses after all. But if they took the meaning to be the actual temple, he didn't say, I will destroy the temple. So, the two false witnesses supplied the false testimony and they established the charge. Now, at that point, the high priest Caiaphas with all the pretended indignation that he could muster, he stood up or he says, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? So he asked and he demanded an answer. And what did Jesus answer? Nothing. He held his peace. As I said last week, don't you sometimes wonder why Jesus never defended himself? Why didn't he just say, Now, fellas, you got it all wrong. I wasn't talking about destroying a building. What's, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about my body. You destroy my body, and in three days I'll come back to life. Do you think that would have helped? No, and neither did Jesus think that it would help. They weren't looking for the truth. They're not interested in truth. They've already decided they're not going to change. And an explanation that if you kill me, I'm going to come back to life is just the same thing as saying again, I'm God. So that wasn't going to help anybody. And it's doubly interesting when you think that Jesus had raised Lazarus just previous to this. Uh, they had no defense for that miracle. Lazarus was alive. He might even have been out there in the courtyard with Peter listening to all the proceedings as they went on. 
Here's a man who's alive. They can't do anything about that miracle. They have to live with that. But to have Jesus come along now and say, I will raise myself from the dead, that takes it to a whole different level. So they're they're not going to accept that. So there's no reason for Jesus to explain his answer. Well, at this point, Caiaphas was as angry as Annas was earlier. Jesus refused to answer. It's bad enough to refuse to answer the former high priest. He's respected, but it is doubly worse, much worse for him to refuse to give an answer to the sitting high priest. And so now Caiaphas becomes enraged, and with his face that's glowing red, he blurted out his demand. And next we see the adjuration that is pronounced. He said, I adjure thee... I adjure thee, and adjure is is a word that means to solemnly charge. Now he's given a command. Caiaphas added to this, he gives the command, he says, By the living God, I adjure thee by the living God. And that means that he was putting Jesus under oath. It's the same as being a witness put under oath, and a witness chair put under oath in our courtrooms. You know, they used to say, put your hand on the Bible, And do you solemnly swear to tell the whole truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And when you put your hand on the Bible, that's the same thing as swearing by Almighty God, swearing in the name of God. But of course, our courtrooms are too heathen to do that any longer, so they don't do it, I don't think. But there's so many ironies that are in this trial. But this has to be the, 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 the biggest, one of the biggest ironies of all. That here, the high priest is a liar. The court is a lie. The trial is a lie. The arrest is a lie. The witnesses are liars. And they demand that Jesus tell the truth. But that's not the greatest irony. Another irony is who Caiaphas asked to swear the truth. Why is it that you put someone under oath? Well, courts do that because people are prone to lie. Especially in stressful situations, they will lie. So courts put people under the penalty of perjury when they ask them to take an oath. They're under perjury if they're found out to be lying. And in the Jewish system, when you lied in court, that meant the same thing that you lied about would be imposed upon you. You'd get the same penalty. So if Jesus was accused of, or the false witnesses uh, got Jesus convicted by a lie, then they were subject to the same thing. They would die as well. Now that means that the court must have committed another egregious violation. They must have secured these witnesses and said, if it's found out that you're lying, don't worry about it. We'll take care of that. But here's the greatest irony. Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth. Jesus, who is truth. Jesus, who could never speak anything but truth, who is all wisdom, all knowledge, all truth personified. He is put under an oath to tell the truth. Now, essentially, he's asked to swear by himself. He's God who's asked to swear by God. Now, listen to this interesting verse in Hebrews 6.13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. God made a promise to Abraham, and God could not make that promise any surer, because there was no one greater than God to swear by. And so God says, well, I'll just swear by myself. And that's what they asked Jesus to do. Now, they were too blind to know what they'd just done, but they asked God to swear by God. Swear to tell the truth. But there aren't any witnesses needed when Jesus speaks. He opens up his mouth and truth flows out. Now here's, a, here's an important observation, if you will permit me to sermonize just a little bit. 
Jesus taught that swearing should not be necessary for Christians. The courts of our country should never have to ask a Christian to swear. They never should. And a Christian should never have to follow any of his statements with, I swear it on a stack of Bibles that it's true. You never should have to follow your statements with that. But do we? Don't we have to swear? I mean, you, you turn to your, the person sitting next to you and say to them, I never lie. Both of you are liars. Christians have gained nothing, uh, no respect from the world because we're uncommonly trustworthy, have we? I mean, when you have liars on television every day of the week, preachers that are lying on television, why would anybody ever trust a Christian any more than anybody else? We haven't given them cause to. Well, Jesus didn't need to swear an oath. He opens up his mouth, and what he says is always the truth. So what's the question here? The high priest said, Tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And let me remind you of the force of that question. The question actually is, Are you God? Now, the high priest didn't ask him, Are you the Son of God by generation? Well, no, the Jews never would have thought that. The Jews didn't believe that God could reproduce. God doesn't procreate. So when they ask, are you the son of God, it's the same as saying, in essence, are you the same in essence as God? Are you God? And they knew that he'd already claimed this before. They were already angry about it before. So here they have him in a court of law. This is the religious court, which the same to them as government. And, and he said, they ask him, are you the son of God? And Jesus answered that question. And everybody here better hear it as well. Jesus said, thou hast said. And that wasn't an evasive answer. That's a common way of answering questions. He said it like this. You said it. You said it. Or, it is as you said. Or, if we wanted to use a modern idiom, we would say, you better believe it. Yeah, you better believe it. You got that right. The answer is, yes, I am God. And then he threw a truckload of firewood on that fire, because he was driving a Ford truck. It was a big truckload. So in Matthew 26, 64, it says, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Let me translate that for you from English to English. After this, you're going to see me sitting on the throne of God, and I'm coming in riding on the clouds. And isn't that the summary of his sermon back in Matthew 24? If you want to look there in Matthew 24, 27 through 31. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall give her light, and the stars shall, shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus answered the question, didn't he? There's no room to guess here about what he meant. He is God and he is the real judge who will come and bring justice to bear. Well, what happens if somebody claims to be God? 
That's blasphemy, isn't it? Out of his own mouth, they have the charge that they want. This is what they need for condemnation, and Jesus made sure that they had it. So there's no longer any need for them to guess what exactly did he mean about destroying the temple and building it in three days. Well, let's try to figure it. They don't need that any longer. Just set that one aside. Now they have a word of blasphemy that comes from his own mouth, and now Caiaphas has the charge that he wants. And now Caiaphas is torn between doing either a joyful jig or ripping with rage. And he chose the latter for courtroom decorum. In 65, verse 65, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. He rent his clothes. I wish I had time for a detailed explanation of that. It's rich, it's comical. I mean, this sort of thing was actually expected. I mean, tearing your clothes, that's a sign of distress. That, that's a sign that you are so upset, you're really put out, and you just can't take it anymore. So what you do is you just tear up your clothes. But here's the silly part about it. It was common at trials. It's sort of like the signal, we're through here. We've got all we need now. We've got what we want. Oh, there's nothing real about this. This is showtime. And they actually had clothes that were prepared for this kind of a show. In the multiplicity of trivial proceedings of Jewish courtrooms, they had laws about this, about where you could start tearing your clothes, about how far you could tear them, about where you were supposed to end. They had laws that covered all of that. And it's sort of like, you know, I think uh, maybe to make it easy to understand, they had tearaway clothes. Uh, you, 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 you've seen basketball games where the guys that are on the bench, the coach says, get up, you've got to go into the game, and they tear their pants off. They had those snaps on them and their tearaway clothes. I'm convinced those were invented in Israel way back here in the first century because they had their tearaway clothes. Now, the Jews had a version of that. Uh, again, how many times, even how many times that clothes could be torn and sewed up again for the next show. And so Caiaphas put on his show. He's not really concerned about blasphemy. He's concerned because he has a charge that will stick. Now, to be fair about that, there, there's, another, there's another version of this interpretation. And the other version says, well, this is as serious as a heart attack. I mean, this, this is a charge of blasphemy. It has to be answered. And so there's a show of disgust. And in which case... We have to go to Joel chapter 2 and verse 13 for what should have been done for all the dishonesty that took place in this courtroom. And this is what God says. And rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. But Caiaphas was too deceived to think that he should repent. And so he continued, what? Further need have we of witnesses. Behold, ye have heard his blasphemy. So that's the charge that's needed. And now they're ready to announce their predetermined verdict. This is the adjudication of the case. He is guilty of death. Leviticus 24.16 says, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. The law says he's guilty of death. 
Now they have to figure out a way to carry out the sentence. Now, capital cases are outside of their authority. The Romans had taken that away. So they can't take him out to stone him, although that was sometimes done. I'll explain that maybe later on. They did that to Stephen. But Jesus was too high profile for them to stone him. The Jews couldn't kill him uh, for blasphemy. Rome, Rome's not going to support that charge as a cause of death. So if they stone him for blasphemy, then certainly Rome's going to call them in question because that's not a capital offense, according to them. So they're going to need a, they're going to need a charge that Rome can support. But I want us to notice, lastly for today, this point, and that is the abuse that was perpetrated on him. Verse number 67, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? And here we have the beginning of a day and night of abuse. This leads to the cross. Mark says that they covered his face. And so I suppose that in typical Mid-Eastern style, they put a hood over him, put a hood over his head, and then they began to strike him with their hands. And they said, prophesy unto us, who is it that smote you or who is it that hit you? Now understand why they did that. The superior reason is because it's in the heart of man to betray Christ. We're all born with this hatred. There's no mystery why anyone should do this. I mean, even, even you see it so much among people today that how they take the name of the Lord in vain, how they say things like, Oh, Jesus Christ, and Oh, my God. And all of that is just belittling, belittling the power and the majesty, the name of the holy God. It's just another way of striking God in the face. There's this hostility that's in every one of us, inherent in humans. But there's an inferior reason for it, and that's the heat of the moment. They aren't absolutely sure that they'll be successful when they take Jesus to Pilate. They don't know yet if they're going to be able to convince Pilate to actually execute him. So here they have him. So why not take out all the vengeance on him they can? Now, at least they would get this much satisfaction. Uh, they, they would never be able to treat him this way in the temple area. He has the support of the people there. So they couldn't treat him that way there. That's why they came at night. That's why they arrested him in the garden at night. That's why they have a night trial. The people are not going to support that. So if they're not sure that he's going to get crucified, then why don't they just do all they can to him right now? And I imagine that when he appeared before Pilate, his face was already swollen by the beating. His eyes must have been puffy with blood flowing out of his mouth and of his nose. And interestingly enough, I think he's the only man that could ever be beaten in the face and they could never break his nose. Explain that one. But when Pilate saw him, he had to think, now, just how crazy is this that this man would call himself a king? How could anybody seriously think that he's a threat to Caesar? Now, what we have here is the beginning of his agony. Now, when we go back into the garden, there's certainly agony. There's the suffering. There's the mental anguish. There's the spiritual anguish that goes on there. But now all of that becomes very physical. And before it's done, it will leave behind a man when he's taken down from the cross that it can scarcely be told that he's even human. And can you imagine the scene at the announcement of the verdict? They covered his face. They slapped him with the palms of their hands. Would you do that? Would you be so cruel as to treat Jesus that way? 
Scripture says that you would. The wickedness of the human heart says that you would. You don't even realize what you're capable of. You pick up your newspaper every day and read what people are capable of in the depravity of their hearts. And what are the worst crimes that are committed? Well, they're crimes against God, aren't they? Remember when David sinned and committed adultery and committed murder? He went to the Lord in prayer and he said, Against thee only have I sinned. Every injustice, every crime that is committed is a crime against God. Every lie that you tell, every hurtful thing that you do, especially if you do that to a person who's in God's house, of his own people, that is a crime against God. So it's no wonder that God says for Christians, put away your lying. Put away your bitterness. Put away your evil speaking. Why? Because those are crimes that strike God in the face of his authority. And so, do you wonder why God sends people to hell? Do you wonder why that he does? Who has an excuse not to go to hell? There is no one. Tell me, which of us has not struck the Lamb of God in his face? Which of us have not sinned against him, committed crimes against him? Folks, that is exactly why we need forgiveness. Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. All of this that was done to Jesus, and yet he was still willing to give himself up. He wasn't going to lie. He gave them the charge that they needed, it's, it's just really outstanding. It's totally remarkable that Jesus did not try to get out of any of this. He, he gave himself to them, and then he offers to save the very same ones that killed him. Now, when we get into chapter 27, there's an interesting verse there that I'll point out to you that talks about that very thing. I'm not going to tell you about it now. I don't know how long it'll be before we get there. But you remember this. Remember this that Jesus stands trial every day in the heart of every human. The question is, are you going to believe him or are you going to crucify him? And that's a decision you have to decide every day. Are you going to believe Christ or are you going to crucify him? Certainly as the people of God, we don't want to be guilty of driving a nail in Jesus' hands. But if you're a lost sinner here today and you don't know Christ, you stand guilty and condemned because that's exactly what you have done. And you need forgiveness for it. So I encourage you, when Jesus is on trial in your heart, believe him. Don't crucify him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to endure all of this suffering, all the things that he went through. Here we see him just at the beginning, uh, just as he's begun to be beaten and men to take their vengeance on him. And later, as we watch him go to the cross and see what happens there, the, the beating, the pain, everything he went through is just too gory for us even to imagine. We have no way to frame that picture in our minds. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to the heart of some person today, someone who's lost and doesn't know you as Savior, that you would open up their eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. And we know that no one but you can do it. The heart is so wicked that we seal you out. We have want nothing to do with you. Just like these men will turn away from you every time. And so we need your Holy Spirit to come with its con his conviction and just open up our heart to belief in Jesus Christ.
And then we as Christians, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives for you, to remember that testimony. We don't want to be guilty of of sins against you, crimes that are laid to your charge. So help us, Lord, to live as we should. Bless us today, Lord. Speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.